Our sermon series this spring or winter is uh, Kings. We are looking at the kings of Israel and Judah and looking at them as an example of what it looks like to, what some good examples and bad examples of ruling on God's behalf. In the first sermon, we talked about the fact that God has called each one of us to use the responsibilities and the authority and the ability that he's given us uh, to build his kingdom. And so every one of us rules something on God's behalf, even if it's only our own hands and feet and mouths and, and words. And so each one of us is meant to handle that responsibility according to God's design. And as we look at the kings of Israel, we see that situation in in sharp relief, because these are people who have been called to rule over a nation on God's behalf. So we've talked about Saul, and last week we talked about David, and today we are talking about Solomon. Now, Solomon is similar to David, although not quite to the same level. With David, we, we seem to generally be unaware of how his story ends. We talked last week about how David's story does not actually end very well. And chapter by chapter, most of it, especially his reign as king, goes pretty poorly. Solomon is another one. I think one of the reasons why we have that perception of David is because David wrote Psalms. And so we're constantly seeing him connected with Psalms. And we constantly see Solomon connected with Proverbs. And so we tend to think of Solomon as a wise uh, ruler who did things well. We're a little bit more aware that he made at least one critical mistake at the end, although we often misunderstand what that mistake was. But Solomon is a really good example for us of the challenges that happen for God's people when things are going well. In some ways, it is harder to be a faithful follower of Jesus when things are going well than when things are going poorly. There are particular temptations that we face when things are going well, and Solomon is a great example of that. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the story of Solomon, and we're going to look at how this man, who as we will see, was given a divine gift of wisdom, ended up making some very foolish choices. And hopefully from that we'll learn how we can wisely handle the responsibilities that God has given us. Last week, we ended the story of David by looking at how Solomon uh, set up his kingdom. Remember, he sent around a guy with a sword and a violin case to take care of all the enemies that were a threat to his power. And then it said, Solomon's kingdom is established at the end of chapter 2. The first story that happens in chapter 3 is that Solomon goes to a place called uh, Gibeon to make a sacrifice and to, 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 make, you know, to, to establish his relationship with God as king. And it says, at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night. God said, ask, what should I give you? Now, it wasn't until I studied for for this sermon that I realized this is the first time that God speaks to a king. God never spoke to Saul or David. He, He spoke to priests or prophets to speak to David and Saul, but God did not speak directly to Saul or David. So this is a big deal. Solomon replied, Lord, my God, you have now made your servant king in my father David's place, yet I am just a youth with no experience in leadership. So give your servant a receptive heart to judge your people and to discern between good and evil. 
So Solomon feels unequal to the task of being king, and so he asks God to give him discernment, wisdom, so that he can rule well. Now it pleased the Lord that Solomon had requested this, so God said to him, Because you have requested this, I will therefore do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and understanding heart, so that there has never been anyone like you before and never will be again. In addition, I will give you what you did not ask for, both riches and honor, so that no king will be your equal during your entire life. If you walk in my ways and keep my statutes and commands, just as your father David did, I will give you a long life. So, it's a pretty good promise from God right at the start of your, of your career, that God is, uh, is glad that Solomon's main priority is to rule well, which is what ours should be, right? He wants to be wise with the responsibility that God has given him. And so God says, yes, I will do that, and I'll give you all the things that you could have asked for. So I'm going to make sure that your reign is secure, that you're wealthy, that you're well thought of. I'm going to give you all the success you could want, right? So Solomon, right after this, he goes into this story, where a famous story where two women come to Solomon, who they're roommates, and they both have babies, and one of them dies, and they fight over which one is whose baby, or which one goes to, which mom is the mom of the baby who's alive? And Solomon says, all right, take a sword and cut it in half. And the woman who is the real mom says, no, please don't, give her to the other woman. And the woman who's not the real mom says, go ahead, cut her in half, that's, cut the baby in half, that's fair. And Solomon knows which mother is the real mother. Now, the point of that story is to give you an example of the fact that God kept his promise to Solomon. God made him, gave him wisdom so that he could rule well. He was able to identify who the right mother was and make sure that the, the mother got her child, and that's, that's to set for us an understanding of the kind of king that he was. So the first thing we see is that Solomon is a very wise ruler over God's people. The second thing that we see that is one of the most important things Solomon does is Solomon builds the temple of God. So Solomon began to build the temple for the Lord in the 480th year after the Israelites came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of his, of his reign over Israel in the month of Ziv, which is the second month. The temple that Solomon built for the Lord was 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Those numbers, just kind of vaguely keep them in your mind of the, the general dimensions of the temple. So what we see at the beginning of the story is that Solomon successfully built up God's kingdom. And you can take that both in the sense that he, he built it up by establishing justice and wisdom in their, their court system and in their policies, he ruled well. You could also talk about the brick and mortar building that he did of building up God's temple, which is a pretty unique uh, opportunity to have, to get to be the first one to build a house, uh, an actual you know, stable, can't-be-moved house for God to live in. That he'd ha- God had had a tent, but he never had a house. Solomon gets to build it. That's a pretty big honor. And Solomon does a good job in all of these areas. And so God honors that. Not only did God appear to him once for the first time that he appears to a king, but God appeared to him again. When Solomon finished building the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all that Solomon desired to do, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time, just as he appeared to him at Gibeon. The Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer, the prayer that he gave when he dedicated the temple, and the petition you have made before me. I have consecrated this temple you have built to put my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there at all times. Now, that's a, that is a big deal. Because it's one thing to build God a house. It's another thing for God to move in. 
right? Anybody can build a house and say it's for God, but for God to say, yeah, I'll, I'll take it, I'm moving in, that's a really big deal. So God honored and rewarded Solomon's efforts in building his kingdom. God endorsed this. That's a really big endorsement for God to say, yes, I'm going to live in this building. But that's not the last thing that God says. He says, as for you, Solomon, if you walk before me as your, David, as your father David walked, with a heart of integrity and in, and in what is right, doing everything I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and ordinances, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised your father David." you will never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. If you or your sons turn away from following me and do not keep my commands, my statutes that I have set before you, and if you go and serve other gods and bow to worship them, I will cut off Israel from the land I gave them, and I will reject the temple I have sanctified for my name. Israel will become an object of scorn and ridicule among all the peoples. It's very important to notice. Solomon does a really good job of of ruling over God's kingdom, and God honors that. But God does not owe Solomon anything. There is no sense that God says, hey, you built me a really nice temple, so I'm going to support you forever. We're good here on out, right? I've got your back. I owe you one. Thanks. God does not say that he owes Solomon anything. And it would be really easy if anybody had a time in their life when they could rest on their laurels of what they've done for God and say, hey, I'm good. I've done my part. I've done my bit. And now the rest of my time is for me. Solomon would be able to do that. But God does not give him that option because God expected continued faithfulness from Solomon. He, expect, he, he honored what Solomon did, but he expected continued faithfulness. Because there's nothing that Solomon can do where God would say, okay, now, now you're good, now you're done, and I'll, I'll have your back forever no matter what. Right? He, sa- he says, I will put my name and my, my eyes and my heart here forever. But that word forever, it sounds final, but it's actually conditional because later on he says, but if your family, if your sons turn away from me, I will remove my presence. I will cut you off from the land. That forever won't be forever. So you can't just say, because of the things I did for God in the past, I'm good now and the rest of my time is for me. Faithfulness is a continual thing that God expects from Solomon throughout his reign. And if we had read the entire story up to this point, we would, we would be aware of a tension that's been building throughout this story. Because Solomon's actually been doing two things throughout his reign. Okay? I told you that the first thing he does after he establishes his kingdom is that he goes to Gibeon to pray to God. That's not actually the first thing that Solomon did. The very first thing that Solomon did was he made an alliance with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, by marrying Pharaoh's daughter. Solomon brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace, the Lord's temple, and the wall surrounding Jerusalem. Now, this is important to recognize. We live in a culture that, that is, you know, we constantly think of, of relationships like these as romantic, that like, there's some like meet cute, right? But Solomon did not encounter encounter Pharaoh's daughter at, at some like summit and fall in love with her, right? 
he sent someone to Egypt to ask Pharaoh, and Pharaoh considered the political implications and said yes. And Solomon asked, he probably, he had, I mean, it's not like he could have seen a photo. He couldn't have checked her Facebook account. He has no idea, he knows nothing about her except that she's Pharaoh's daughter. This is a political thing. Solomon wants to marry Pharaoh's daughter because that gives him an alliance with Egypt, which is a huge deal. Because Egypt is a superpower at the time. Okay? So the first thing Solomon does is he gets a really great alliance with a really powerful country. Okay? And then we talked about how Solomon built the temple, but that's not the only thing Solomon built. He spent seven years building the temple, but it says he completed his entire palace complex after 13 years of construction. He built the house of the forest of Lebanon. It was 150 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high on four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams on top of the pillars. Solomon's own palace, where he would live in the other courtyard behind the wall, was of similar construction, and he made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, his wife. Now, I'm going to sh- this is an artist's rendering of Jerusalem at the time of Solomon. And I'll zoom in toward the Temple Mount. So that's, what the, that's the temple, Right? And just, just to be generous, let's also give him credit for the grounds that the temple is on. Okay? Here's his palace. Now, granted, there's a lot of business that needs to be done in the official buildings of the king of Israel. But the author of Kings didn't have to give us the numbers. Right? He told us the difference in size. And if you, look at, um, if you look at the other things that we know about Solomon's kingdom, you start to see this trend. Solomon isn't only building God's kingdom. He's also building his own. Right? It says that Solomon surpassed all the kings of the world in riches and in wisdom. The whole world wanted an audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom that God had put in his heart. Every man would bring his annual tribute, items of silver and gold, clothing, weapons, spices, and horses and mules. Solomon accumulated 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen and stationed them in the chariot cities with the king of Jerusalem. Remember the horses and the chariots. Uh, The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones, and he made cedar as abundant as sycamore in the Judean foothills. That meant something to the original audience. I don't know how much sycamore there is in Judea, but I'm sure there's a lot. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and Q. The king's traders bought, bought them from Q at the going price. It was good to be Solomon. Right? He was now, of course, God promised him this wealth, that he would be prosperous because of his wisdom and because of his loyalty to God. But notice that that Solomon got quite a bit out of this, right? So at the same time Solomon, at the same time as all this, Solomon was building up his own kingdom. And again, if we had, I think when we did the plan a couple years ago, I talked about the benefits of having the law of Moses memorized when you read Old Testament stories. It'd be nice if we did because you'd get all these references, but I don't have it memorized. I don't know if you do. So I'll point out 
one of the important things that an Israelite would have had in their mind as they're reading Solomon's story, which is that in Deuteronomy, when we're given the instructions, the king only gets a few verses of instructions okay, in the law of Moses. But among those, it says, the king must not acquire many horses for himself or send the people back to Egypt to acquire horses. For the Lord has told you, you are never to go back that way again. He must not acquire many wives for himself so that his heart won't go astray. He must not acquire very large amounts of silver and gold for himself. Yeah, so much for uh, silver being as common as stones and all those horses that he had. And uh, it's, this is not... God promised him prosperity, and Solomon took it a little bit farther for his own benefit, right? Now, where this becomes clear that he's doing something wrong is in chapter 11. It says, Solomon had loved many foreign women in addition to Pharaoh's daughter, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them, and they must not intermarry with you, because they will turn your hearts away to follow other gods. To these women, Solomon was deeply attached in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 who were concubines, and they turned his heart away. Now, first question when you read that passage is, what does a person do with 700 wives and 300 concubines? Like, that, that doesn't actually make sense. If you think that Solomon is doing this in order to satisfy his desire for a relationship or his libido. That, but remember, princes and princesses don't meet each other at the well. They don't have meet-cutes, they have treaties. So every one of these marriages is a result of a treaty that is meant to support the stability of Solomon's kingdom. Okay? Now, you may think, yeah, but it says he loves them. Well, we've talked about this in our How to Read the Bible class. The word love in Hebrew, this word, has a different range of meaning than the English word, and it actually includes the meaning of a, uh, being loyal to someone in a treaty, being politically loyal to an ally. So, for instance, in 1 Kings 5, it tells us King Hiram of Tyre sent, the, sent his emissaries to Solomon when he heard that he had been anointed king in his father's place, for Hiram had always been friends with David. There they have chosen to trans... And actually, most... I had a hard time finding a more accurate translation of that. It doesn't say he had been friends with David, not literally. What it says is he had loved David. Now, what it means, it doesn't even mean been friends with because they hardly knew each other, right? They ruled in different countries. What it means is they had a friendly alliance. They were loyal to each other. They were on the same side, right? That, it's like the special relationship between America and England, if you've heard of, or in Great Britain, like if you've heard of that. Like they were good allies, right? And that's the same word that is being used for Solomon in his relationship with these women. Because honestly, how do you love 700 wives and 300 concubines? That's, it's not realistic. What is realistic is having that many alliances to to stabilize your empire, especially if you're a king who's never fought a battle, right? David protected his empire by winning battles. Solomon protected his empire by marrying princesses. And those princesses were ambassadors, so they would have brought their gods with them because they represented their kingdom to 
to the king. And so he would have been expected to give them their own little like religious um, embassy where they could worship their own God. So in order to maintain these alliances, Solomon has to allow them to bring gods with them and set them up in Jerusalem. And it says, when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away from Away to follow other gods, he was not wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord his God as his father David had been. Solomon followed Ashereth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the abhorrent idol of the Ammonites. And it lists several others. And the question is, what, what happened for Solomon? Um, how did he become so foolish? A person who has spoken to God twice, has seen the presence of God inhabit the temple, why would he be tempted to worship these other gods? was because it became a condition of his alliances. It was political pressure from these relationships. His wives, what, what would they benefit from having him worship their gods? Well, it's a way of connecting him with their country. It's a way of strengthening the relationship. And his pre, the pressure he feels is, I need to make sure that I'm on good terms with all of these other countries in order to maintain the kingdom that I have built. So this is the challenge for Solomon. This is how a wise man makes a foolish decision. He was forced, as soon as the wives wanted to bring their gods with them, he was faced with a choice. Am I going to build God's kingdom or am I going to build mine? Because building God's kingdom requires that I not allow any other gods here. But building the kingdom I want requires for me to compromise so that I can have these alliances because I think those are the ones that will give me the kingdom I want. Not the promises of God, but the alliances that I've built. So every time he considers marrying a princess, he has to make this decision over and over again. Whose kingdom am I going to build? And when Solomon chose, he clung to his own kingdom instead of God's. And in the end, if you track with the imagery that's going on, he ends up looking a lot like Pharaoh. He enslaves Israelites. He's married to Pharaoh's daughter. He uses Pharaoh's horses. He enslaves the Israelites for building projects. Like he basically becomes a new Pharaoh. So God appears to Solomon a third time. God said to Solomon, Since you have done this and did not keep my covenant and my statutes, which I commanded you, I will tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. However, I will not do it during your lifetime for the sake of your father, David. I will tear it out of your son's hand. So because of the promise he made to David, he's not going to, he's not going to take Solomon off the throne, but he's also going to stop propping him up. And trouble starts to build. And what we find is we start to see that God... Remember I talked last week about how sometimes when God punishes us, he just stops holding back the consequences. He doesn't have to do anything. He just stops holding them back. Well, it turns out that all along, God has been holding back consequences. Because right after this, what happens is it says, God raised up this guy who... David had killed his dad and took over the kingdom, and this guy had run off, and now he's going to come back and reclaim the kingdom that David took from him. And this guy over here is going to do the same thing. And all the people that have been shunted aside by the empire that David and Solomon built, they start to, to build their own forces and start to oppose him. But the cruelest cut comes from within Israel. It says, Solomon's servant, Jeroboam, son of Nebat, was an Ephraimite from Zeradah, and he ends up being one of the slave, slave masters. Jeroboam rebelled against Solomon. 
It doesn't give us a ton of detail about how he rebels. It does tell us that a prophet came and encouraged him to do it. But he rebels. And here's the really interesting thing. Okay? Solomon has bet everything. He has bet his relationship with God on the idea that his allies will support his kingdom. Right? Starting with who? Who was his first ally? Pharaoh of Egypt. Right? He has invested everything in the idea that his alliances will protect his kingdom. Therefore, Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam, but he fled to Egypt, to King Shishak of Egypt, where he remained until Solomon's death. Who protects his main enemy? Pharaoh. In fact, this is the second enemy of Solomon's who has run to Pharaoh for protection. And the first one, Pharaoh marries one of his relatives to that guy. So Solomon thinks that his alliances will protect him. He's trusting in the love of these alliances that he has, including with Pharaoh. How much does Pharaoh actually love Solomon? About as far as it benefits him. Because Solomon has decided to invest in this game of power politics, and unfortunately, that means that he's gonna, his dynasty is now going to live or die on power politics. They're going to live and die at the whim of more powerful players. So God withdrew his support from Solomon's kingdom and it began to crumble around him. And here it does give God a bit more of an active role when it says God raised up this person and God raised up that person. But God doesn't have to do much. Again, he kind of just stops protecting Israel from the consequences of what they've been doing. And these things just come up because this is the world that Solomon has built. It's a different world than the one David built. But now David, Solomon is living in the world he's created. And that is a world where the people who win are the people who have the alliances with the most powerful kingdoms around them. And, and he's, he's going to have to, his kingdom is now built on that instead of on loyalty to God. And it was loyalty to God that God had promised would be an eternal foundation. Next week, we're going to see this come to a head and see the kingdom divide into two. But today, I want us to look at what we can learn from Solomon's example in terms of our areas of responsibility as God's people. Because each one of us has been given an area of responsibility, of authority. We have resources uh, that God gives us to use for his purpose. How can we use those faithfully? Well, the first thing I will tell you is that you cannot choose your own king. You cannot build your own kingdom and God's. You will have to choose. Now, God's kingdom is for your good. And so if you're building God's kingdom, you're actually building the best possible kingdom you could. So it is a good thing to build God's kingdom. But if you're also building your own, at some point you are going to have to make a choice because there will be a decision that you have to make that will either serve God's kingdom or serve yours. And it won't be able to do both. It's temptation. That moment when, well, you know, if I, you know we're getting, heading towards tax season now, right? If I, if I fudge the numbers here... I'll, I'll come out a lot better. That'll help my kingdom. Will it help God's kingdom? You know, we have all kinds of choices like that where I can speak to this person this way and it'll be satisfying to me. It'll build my kingdom because it'll, it'll make me feel better, but will it build God's kingdom? 
Jesus points this out, especially when it comes to money. He says, no one can serve two masters since either he will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, Jesus is being a little hyperbolic in there in the sense that you probably, hopefully you love God and you struggle with loving money, right? But what he means by loving and hating is which one is going to direct your life. Which, when you have to choose between what's faithful to God and what makes or protects your money, which one are you going to choose? Loving God means hating your money, meaning allowing your money to suffer for the sake of God. Choosing your money means hating God in the sense that you'll let his cause suffer for your security. We are going to face moments when we have to choose. If we didn't, we wouldn't need, if we always wanted the same thing as God, we wouldn't need the Bible. Right? We wouldn't need all of these things that we do to understand God's will. So you're going to face those choices. It's important for us to remember that human kingdoms are never secure and they never last. They may last for your lifetime. They won't be secure, but they might last for your lifetime. But they don't really last and they're never really secure. Right? Because Solomon maybe felt secure, but the only, ironically, the only thing that was keeping him secure was the faithfulness of God. He wasn't secure because he built on these, on these treaties with people that couldn't really be trusted. Jesus tells a story about a man who's very wealthy and he decides to use his excess wealth to build store towers so he can store more wealth. And he says, I will do this. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is demanded of you. And the thing you have prepared, who's, the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's what it will be like with one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Another place Jesus says, don't store up treasure for yourselves on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal or where Pharaoh betrays you. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your heart is, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The wisest thing you can do is to focus on building God's kingdom because that actually lasts. That actually means something and that's actually secure. When we build God's kingdom, we know that we are part of the kingdom that will last. The kingdom that will endure. So if you want to be a part of what will really matter, what will really last, then you need to build God's kingdom. Because God's kingdom will last and because it's eternal, it is worth whatever we do whatever we have to give up to be a part of it. Whatever part of my kingdom I have to give up to build God's kingdom, it's worth it. This is why Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. I just thought of it. Here it is. As human beings, we have our fortunes in avocados. Avocados are good until they're not. 
you have a chance to convert those avocados to gold. Gold lasts, right? Everything we build for ourselves is avocados. It's going to go bad. And you have a chance. Imagine what you'd be willing to do if you got paid in avocados and you had a chance to convert it to gold. That would be worth it, right? You'd pretty much take any exchange rate because it doesn't matter how many avocados you have if they're all bad. In fact, when they go bad, the more you have, the worse it is. So it is worth it, whatever conversion rate you get. We build, uh, so it is always worth it to, make, to build God's kingdom instead of ours. And you know who knew that? Jerry Carter. Jerry Carter knew that. And yesterday, it was really important to me as we remember Jerry Carter to make the point that, that we, we talk every week about the things that really matter and the things that are really eternal. And then when we, um, when we remember someone who's passed on, it's important for us to recognize that person did that. Jerry did the things that matter. And he, he built God's kingdom. I, this was the first time that I had found out that he, didn't, he worked small churches and had to take on a second job. He didn't have a single job, a single vocation, until he was 50, over 50, right? And that's how much he loved the church and, and loved building God's kingdom, was to work two, three jobs to be able to do that. That's a life that really matters. That's a kingdom that really endures. That is, that is um, work, the, the result of work is eternal. See, we build God's kingdom by passing on his generosity to others. Whether that's the way we spend our money, or whether that's the way we spend our time, or our energy, or our emotions. You know, in Jerry's case, it was taking jobs that didn't pay as much in the first place so that he could be generous with his time and his energies and his pastoral skills. Whatever that looks like, the Bible continually reminds us that being faithful to God's kingdom means being generous. In 1 Timothy, it says, Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. We are tempted away by so many things that are not truly life. We are tempted away by avocados. But when we are generous with others, when we pass on God's generosity to others, we build things out of stone. We build things out of gold. We build things that last. And I don't know about you, but that's what I want to be a part of. And that's what we can be a part of.